It's found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 66. Let us hear the word of God. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, How terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Oh, bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth hath spoken. When I was in trouble, I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Here ends our scripture lesson. And God be the praise for this his own most holy and inspired word. At this time... I first met our speaker for this evening about 15 years ago. A frequent visiting preacher in the area of Buffalo, New York, where I was serving as a pastor, he had been strongly recommended for a preaching mission at our church. I shall never forget that week of services. As he led us up the glorious heights and down into the mysterious depths of the riches of God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. His impassioned preaching made a remarkable and enduring impact upon the spiritual life of that congregation. At various intervals during the years since, I have enjoyed renewing my fellowship with his friend in Christ, and always the story has been the same. I have gone away humbled and blessed, by his insight into the word of God, his mastery of the church's theological heritage throughout the ages, his fearless stand for the pure faith of the gospel, 
and his tireless, energetic devotion to the service of Christ. And Dr. John H. Gerstner is a graduate of Westminster College, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Harvard University, where he earned the Doctor of Philosophy degree. After several prominent pastorates in the former United Presbyterian Church of North America, he was in 1950 appointed to the faculty of Pittsburgh Xenia Seminary, the theological school of that denomination. Since 1959, he has been professor of church history and government in the merged Pittsburgh Theological Seminary of the United Presbyterian Church, USA. Author of many books, he has earned wide respect, respect for his work in Christian apologetics and is a noted authority on the theology and history of Puritanism. In popular demand at churches, colleges, seminaries, and conferences all across America. He is probably the most striking example you will ever see of St. Paul's principle of self of Christian self-discipline in its vigorous and relentless exercise. In this connection, I might mention that some years ago, he dedicated a book of programs for young adults to the personnel of the Pennsylvania Railroad on whose coaches he wrote that book. <coughs> for several years, he commuted once each week from Pittsburgh to Chicago in order to teach courses in church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. In 1957, I spent three weeks touring Reformation sites in Europe with him, and it was a hectic pace. <clears throat> Dr. Gerstner has spoken to appreciative audiences from this institute platform before, and the year, I believe, before the seminary was formally constituted. We are delighted to welcome him on his return this year. He will preach to us this evening on the subject, When Prayer is Sin. Dr. Gerson. I don't suppose that uh, Professor Bodie has ever been called a fringe benefit before, but, <laughs> but uh, delightful as it is to be with you here this evening and anticipating, as I did, of course, renewing my fellowship with Dick Bodie, I didn't know I would have the pleasure of being on this pulpit with him. I've been looking forward some time to seeing what I've been hearing about for the last five years, the remarkable thing that has been happening at this Reformed Seminary here in Jackson, Mississippi. As your professor has mentioned, I teach in Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and the same thing which is happening here is not happening there. <laughs> As he also mentioned, I had the privilege of being a professor in the Pittsburgh Xenia Theological Seminary when an extraordinary thing was happening. 
It was, as far as I was familiar with the American scene, the only regular denominational seminary which was becoming more orthodox. And while I was happy about that, which was taking place under the presidency of Dr. Long and even more so of Dr. Leach, I confess I became a little bit apprehensive because as I read the history of our own country, and it may not be amiss to call it to the attention of a seminary five years old, as I look at the history, I haven't researched this carefully and the observation may not be strictly accurate, but the impression I get is that no reformed theological seminary, no matter how illustrious its history has been, has survived as such more than 150 years. We've seen Harvard, Yale, Andover, Hartford, Princeton, Union, others go by the board, and I was wondering at this extraordinary burning bush situation at Pittsburgh Xenia that as we were reaching our centennial and a half, we were actually in the providence of God becoming more rather than less reformed, and then the merger took place. Our faculty, with two exceptions, were most vigorously opposed to the merger. We had premonitions of what would happen, and the only thing that has surprised me in the subsequent dozen years is the rapidity with which it has happened. I'm not mentioning this to suggest that you may be at ease in Zion for the next 145 years, <laughs> but rather to rejoice with you that God has a wonderfully gracious way of bringing new life where the old has decayed. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood about my own seminary, and I'm talking about Pittsburgh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I have the privilege of being, as your professor has mentioned, a guest lecturer, is a place which warms my heart. But Trinity is an ecumenically evangelical seminary. I am a Reformed person, and I am there as a visiting professor, not because I'm Reformed, not in spite of it, of course, but because I am evangelical and adhere faithfully to the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. And Trinity, in that vein of evangelical ecumenicity, is being extraordinarily blessed. I have a particular joy in being here because you, in addition to belonging to the broad evangelical ecumenism of our day, are a Reformed theological institution. I can't tell you the satisfaction, the joy that it is to be here and just simply look at you, listen to you sing, and to talk with you here and there. 
In these two messages in the evening, which I have been led to believe are of a more uh, popular character than the heavyweight addresses which my colleagues on the conference have already been giving and which I shall attempt to give in the theology of Edwards tomorrow morning, these evening messages will be in a lighter vein. If they have anything to do with heavyweight theology, I think you might possibly think of this message and the one which I propose to give tomorrow evening as an antidote to the new morality. But I shan't be speaking directly on that subject. You're going to have to draw the implications yourself. That won't be too difficult to do, I suspect, however. You will have noticed in this 66th Psalm, which uh, the critics feel is probably a liturgically structured psalm meant for public devotions, that it is also manifestly the celebration of some extraordinary deliverance from the part of a child of God, possibly the writer of this psalm. The authorship is not certain, but it is certain that the writer was in deep distress and in such anxiety that he even resorted to a very rarely used, alas, means of grace, namely a vow. The 66th Psalm is a record of God's response to this saint's distress and a celebration of the extraordinary deliverance he had from whatever his hazard was, and for 19 of the 20 verses he celebrates God's gracious, redemptive power on his behalf. There is one discordant verse, and that is the verse to which I want to call your attention to this evening, where the psalmist reminds himself that the whole thing could have been utterly otherwise. All of us historians are interested in ifs, and here is a colossal if, that had it taken place, the deliverance presumably would not have occurred, this psalm of jubilation would never have been inspired and recorded, and the story would have been quite otherwise. Here in the midst of all his jubilation and celebration and gratitude, most interesting that the psalmist is led by the Spirit of God to reflect on the fact that if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But the Lord hath heard me. He hastens to respond and concludes on the same triumphant note which dominates the psalm throughout. But since it was good for him to reflect on the fact that even prayer could have been a sin, it certainly is appropriate for us to ponder the meaning of these rather difficult words. If, according to the King James Version, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, of course, we who are familiar with the King James Version and are familiar with that verse and we notice that our friend who led us in prayer quoted it. I'm struck by the Elizabethan English here, the odd use of the word regard in a way that we don't customarily employ the term, 
And we certainly are perplexed by such an expression as, if I regard iniquity in my heart. And while this may have been plain English in 1611, it is certainly, apart from this particular occurrence of it, strange language indeed, and puzzling to boot. What is the psalmist trying to say here by the expression, if I regard iniquity in my heart? Well, it seems as if the revisers have sensed the same problem with the magnificent but rather archaic language here and have done what they frequently attempt to do, often successfully, sometimes not successfully. Here I think successfully, and yet I don't think they should have done it. I think they have conjectured that what the writer meant, because he used the word for see and the word for in the heart, that what this looking in the heart, or regarding, as the King James says, in the heart, really adds up to and means is cherish in the heart. I think they're right. I suspect that's what the psalmist does mean, though the King James is more faithful, even though the language is now somewhat archaic. If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Well, what, whatever language you use, what is the idea here? Well, here's a point where I feel much more confident in the negative than in the positive. And I may say, incidentally, to any Harris students who have done pieces of research which have led to a blind alley and have given up in frustration and despair that you ought always to remember a piece of negative research which eliminates a dead end for someone following after you is a real contribution to scholarship. Even though you aren't likely to become famous as a result of it, you ought not to be unduly frustrated by it. Now, this particular case, I think it's worth noticing what we can quite confidently and easily say in this context. Now, I know some contexts where I'd have a major battle on my hand and saying just this that I would nevertheless feel can be quite easily and justly said. What this does not mean, this expression, regard iniquity in my heart, it can't mean if I actually commit iniquity. Whatever it does mean may be quite difficult to ascertain, but surely I'm not being presumptuous when I say Certainly, it does not mean to teach us that if I ever have committed sin, even gross sin, God will not hear my prayer. The reason we can affirm that with confidence is that the Bible does teach that men who love Christ also hate Christ, that men who follow Christ also flee from Christ, that men who profess Christ also deny Christ. David may not have written this psalm, but he wrote a great many. Psalms of great assurance. But David is noted as a criminal offender, especially on one occasion 
guilty of gross adultery and an even more horrible manipulated murder of a man he had wronged. We know that if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself. I remember Harold John Ockengay saying in his Park Street pulpit one time, as an aside to that verse in 1 John, if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself, but he doesn't, said Ockengay, deceive anybody else. <laughs> I remember once, incidentally, uh, you can take a professor out of the classroom, you know, but not the classroom out of the professor, especially with a hundred or so seminary students looking at him. You layman will have to forgive me if I go academic for a moment, but I can remember a student of another persuasion in a class of mine a great many years ago who uh, really did believe he lived without sin. And he had the audacity to tell me so after class in church history once, and I looked at him, and I said to him, Look me in the eye now and tell me you study church history as well as you possibly can. You know what he did? He dropped his eyes and said, I did. <laughs> he knew he didn't, but he felt constrained to say he did. He was caught in a real bind. He was deceiving himself, but he certainly wasn't deceiving his professor in that regard. <laughs> Have you ever had this experience of, uh, I remember once in New Jersey, sitting in a living room, just a regular living room with a group of people around, carrying on a perfectly normal conversation, and one woman on the couch said, I haven't sinned in 20 years. <laughs> I haven't sinned in 20 years. Jacques and Gay says they may deceive themselves. They can't deceive anybody else with that sort of talk. We know the Bible teaches otherwise. As a matter of fact, are you aware, consciously, that sin is a prerequisite to prayer? That you can't pray after the manner your Lord taught you to pray if you don't have any sins to confess. We have any sinless people in the congregation. You mustn't add hypocrisy to all your other guilt by asking God to forgive you for debts that you can't acknowledge having. <laughs> when I say sin is a prerequisite to prayer, I mean the same thing Luther had in mind when he said sin bravely, but I don't mean the same thing that Roman Catholic critics have had in mind when they've censored Martin Luther for saying sin bravely. He didn't mean, of course, that you should make a Christian endeavor to commit iniquity. What he meant was that even though you do love Jesus Christ and are seeking to do his will, you fall far short of the mark, but there is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, though you do sin, not as a matter of policy and practice, you may not fear that your salvation has been forfeited. You have committed what is called a mortal sin and your salvation is destroyed. No, we know that isn't the case. 
In my book, the greatest Christian who has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. If there's anybody who was obsessed, not with what he had attained, but what he had not attained, not what he had achieved, but what he was pressing forward to achieve, surely it was the Apostle Paul. I think, therefore, we can safely say, whatever this expression means, it isn't saying to anybody here, if, as he searches his heart and mind, he must honestly confess iniquity, guilt, that therefore his prayer is presumption and God will not hear him. Now let's turn our attention to the more difficult business of what it is that the Spirit is teaching us through the psalmist here. And here's where I think the RSV has given us an interpretation, perhaps more than a translation, an interpretation which I think is the meaning of the word. If I cherish iniquity, the old Puritans, Dick had the expression, as you know very well, you know, if you're a professor, you know very well, he is no mean Puritan scholar himself. I don't know how much of the secret he left out around here, but I'll assure you that he, especially in the realm of liturgy, is quite knowledgeable in this area but the Puritans had a term for it allow allowing the practice of evil cherishing it giving into it surrendering our president said the other night we're looking for a settlement not a surrender a surrender to iniquity any iniquity gross or refined, public or private, known or secret. Or, mind you, even something which may not be iniquitous, which you think is iniquitous, or are not sure is virtuous. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The cherishing of that, the giving up of the battle against that, the surrendering to that constitutes what I think this passage means here. Take, for example, Paul's statement in Galatians, if anyone be overtaken in a fault, he then prescribes, you remember, a method of church discipline for the restoration of a brother who has been overtaken in a fall. He doesn't specify the fault, but we assume, since he doesn't detail a method of discipline for every incidental offense a Christian may commit, otherwise the church would be involved in litigation every moment of its existence, that this must have been a serious fault that some brother was overtaken in, and discipline was necessary. I'm very happy, incidentally, to find Francis Schaeffer raising his voice on behalf of the necessity of discipline in our time. But the point is this. While the apostle indicates that a brother may be overtaken in a fault which I deem to be a serious fault, requiring rectification and public discipline, he doesn't entertain the idea that the person can be taken over by the fault. He can be overtaken by it for a moment, but he can't be taken over by it. We mentioned that David committed adultery. 
But no one can say of that man after God's own heart that he was an adulterer. You can't deny the fact that he was a, he committed murder. But neither can you truly say that he was a murderer. He was overtaken by a fault, but he was not taken over by the fault. And what our psalmist is saying here is if you're taken over by the fault, even in your heart, whether it's ever expressed in an overt form or not, then what? Well, God will not hear you. It's assumed, you see, that you're going on with business as usual. You've come to church. You're praying publicly, privately, even though you have capitulated. You've laid down your arms. You've surrendered. You said, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other thing, but here's something I can't do, won't do, even for Jesus Christ. I'll resist this, I'll resist that, I'll fight to the death against this, but here is something that's too much for me. This area, I give up. Well, if you do that, if I understand this text aright, the somber comment is that God will not hear you when you pray. I'm sure we all agree that the most intimate and precious phase of the whole Christian life is the actual prayer, communion with the living God. If there's anything that's sacred, it's the intercourse between a soul and its God. And this passage is saying that if we regard iniquity in our heart, God won't listen to us though we're on our knees in prayer. You may say this is somewhat of an academic question. You may say anybody who has actually surrendered, he would give up the whole ball game. Why would he continue? If he knew that he was deliberately disobeying God or refusing to obey God, wouldn't he know? was all over what interest would he have in prayer well the fact is sometimes persons when they commit a compromising relationship as, as, such as this they almost attempt to compensate for it by over assiduity in other areas and they can become almost excessively pious as if by so doing they counterbalance the painful Guilt, of which they are aware. We know this, that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination. But what I'm calling to your attention right now is there is such a thing as the prayer of the wicked. I don't believe that there's anybody, professors, students, pastors, friends, anybody, in this worshiping congregation tonight who has ever prayed as intensively as the devils have prayed. When they asked 
Jesus Christ to depart from them and not to torment them before their time they did so with consummate respect and desperate concern. I repeat, I don't think anybody here has been as intensively involved in an act of prayer before God as the devils of hell who hate him with all their being. Oh yes, you can go on with the game. You can even intensify your apparent earnestness in some futile effort to cover up the fatal yielding to iniquity. But, if I understand this text, God won't hear you. You may hear yourself, but you'll be carrying on a soliloquy as that Pharisee in the temple of whom Jesus spoke, who prayed thus to himself. Or if God is represented as hearing you, it will be in the language of Amos, whereas your incense ascends, your sacrifices are burned, and your songs are sung, God is said to cover his eyes, stop his ears, hold his nose. This is, you know, this language, God will not hear you, is what we today would call masterful understatement. He hears you. <laughs> he hears you afar off. But he detests everything you feel and everything you say. Because if prayer is on the one hand the most sacred activity of the human soul, the prostitution of it in the form of hypocrisy must be the most odious transgression you can commit against heaven. Man wrote a book some years ago, you know, about how odd of God. And there may be some here who think, odd of God. Here's a person on his knees, earnestly, desperately, despairingly, panicked, praying, and God, how odd of God, won't hear him. But is it odd when you think about it? Let me give you a, an odd analogy, a really far out and fantastic sort of story just to bring home the point. Suppose a student should come up to Professor Bodie, well, I'll say me, I'll say come up to me. We'll make it realistic at the beginning at any rate and say, Professor Gershner, admittedly, I didn't do very well in that church history course but I don't think I deserved to flunk. Now, this, this is realistic. People have said this to me through the years, of course. And when they have said that, I usually say to them, you may be right. I draw up no brief for my own infallibility, but if I gave you an F, and it's clearly not a typographical error or a stenographic slip, but a real F, then it means that to the best of my judgment, fallible as it may be, your work is not satisfactory. I hope I haven't done you wrong. I hope your judgment is incorrect. But this is my judgment. 
that your work was not satisfactory. All right, he'll say. Uh, this from here on is pure fiction to illustrate a point. All right, he'll say, Professor Gershner, let's grant that you're sincere about this, even though mistaken. I'm concerned about it. And I'm not the only one who's concerned about it. There are a number of us who suffered from this thing, and we think something has to be done about it. And again, I sympathize with them and express my understanding, and they persist. This is a radical problem, and something radical has to be done about it. And you are the problem. And I say to them, well, what do you propose to do? Well, they're a little bit embarrassed at this point as they remind me once again that it's a radical problem and it calls for drastic action. And I say, all right, what drastic action do you propose? Well, he says, we have decided to shoot you. <laughs> well, I admit that that is drastic action, getting at the root of a radical problem. And when I express that degree of understanding, the student then says to me, but we have a problem. I say, you have a problem. <laughs> yes, he says, we have a problem. Well, I say, what is your problem? And he looks up hopefully at me and he says, we don't have a gun. <laughs> well, that breaks me up, of course. <laughs> and I express the final degree of empathy for their plight. And when I show that degree of understanding, the man screws up the ultimate degree of courage and says to me, but you do. You want to fire my gun? With which to shoot me? You know, professors have been shot through the ages, and it's getting to be a little bit more common these days. And you may read in the papers someday about Gerson being shot in Chicago or in Pittsburgh or maybe down here in Jackson, Mississippi. But he's going to be sure one thing, it won't be my gun with the great gun. All right, that's a bizarre analogy, way out, and all the rest of it. But don't you get my point? Here I am, cherishing in my heart what God hates, infuriating Him by defiant refusal to be in conformity to His commandment, and I have the consummate audacity to ask His blessing on it. I'm asking him for his with Jesus. Jesus once said that the devil, whom Jonathan Edwards called the greatest blockhead of them all, <laughs> would have more sense than to do that. You remember the occasion to which I refer? It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that no one of the contemporaries of Jesus doubted his miracle. We get 2,000 years from the scene and the question arises. But in his own day, even his enemies admitted his miracles. But you remember how they accounted for them, saying, you do these things by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. Christ's reply is appropriate here, isn't it? When he says, virtually, if I may use sort of American slang here. What kind of a fool do you think the devil is? Do you suppose the devil would give me the power to go around, develop, to go around delivering people from his kingdom? 
Don't you realize a house divided against itself can't stand and even the devil knows that? If even the devil is bright enough tonight, and even a seminary professor won't give his gun with which to be shot, you don't think that the all-wise God is going to bless you so that you might curse him? Is it out of God that he should say to us that if we cherish iniquity in our hearts, he will May I close with two briefly stated points. First, this. As we search our hearts, you search yours, I'll search mine. I can't know your thoughts, and you can't mine. But you search your heart, and let me search my heart, and if we have in all candor to admit that we are cherishing iniquity in our hearts, then all I can say is, and dare I say less, stop praying. Whatever that iniquity is to which you have surrendered, it can't be as bad as attempting to cover it up with the most sacred privilege offered to you. No, if I understand this passage, I must say, as a minister of Christ, if anyone here is carrying iniquity in his heart, stop praying. Except, of course, for the prayer of repentance, you understand. But don't pray as if you belong to God's family when you're acting like a bastard. But, this is the second thing. No minister of Christ wants people to stop praying. But to stop praying... If you are, right now, and if, on the other hand, you know that whatever your failings may be, and however miserable our discipleship at its very best is, that when Christ puts the question, lovest thou me, we can say with Peter, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Then we can say with the psalmist, he hath heard me. And he will hear us and answer us abundantly above anything we can ever ask or think. And God grant that it may be so. May we in closing prayer here spend just a minute or two in and let each one search his own heart. And then we'll close with a moment of audible prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.